continuing in our series, Kingdom Come, in Luke's Gospel. Now initially, we're actually on the Lord's Prayer this morning. I thought we would maybe spend one week. That's how much I kind of planned out for us to spend when we got here. Luke's version is a little bit different than Matthew's. It's not the version that most of us grew up memorizing, right? So there's some few word variations in there. I was also aware there's just tons and tons of teaching done on this topic. And so I thought, no one's going to be remiss if it's only one week that we spend on the Lord's Prayer. Or so I thought, and so the Holy Spirit corrected me. Because as I was preparing this week, I realized the more and more I studied, the more and more I would be remiss if we only spent one week here on the Lord's Prayer. There's just too much to cram into one sermon and to do it justice. Jesus gives us a very concise prayer, but it is surely not a shallow prayer. There is much to mine. And so we're going to spend a few weeks now considering how Jesus taught us to pray. Would you look with me at Luke chapter 11? We're going to start very beginning of the chapter in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And when he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. The word of the Lord. May He write its truth upon our hearts. Now as I was preparing this, I was struck by the request that the disciple had for Jesus. But I don't think it's an odd request. In fact, I think if we look at our lives... If you've ever had the experience of praying with someone, sitting with someone, or just even hearing them pray, and that person really knows how to pray, they really know what they're about when they pray, it's an appealing thing to be around, isn't it? Now, I don't mean you're hearing someone who sounds impressive when they pray. And I'm not saying you're, you're around somebody who's, who's really eloquent when they pray. I'm not, I'm not saying they've got a pleasant tone. Like Everyone sort of has a prayer voice, right? Not talking about people who have, who have really great prayer voices or, or the right cadence. That, that's not what I'm talking about. Sometimes we think those are important aspects of prayer, but they really aren't. What I mean is, have you ever been with someone that as you listen with them, as you pray with them, you're just struck? You just know that they know what they are about when they pray. You know this because as you sit there, you get a distinct sense that they know God. They aren't just reciting phrases. They are talking with Him. They are communing with Him. This isn't perfunctory address. It's not formalized. It's personal. And as you listen to someone like that pray, you you hear the intimacy that they share with God in prayer. If you've ever had that experience, it's almost a tangible sense of the nearness of God that they experience as they pray. And if you've experienced it, you can't help but think and desire the same thing. You long to pray like them, to to talk with God like them. More than that, 
to know God like they know God. If you've ever experienced that, then it shouldn't come as any surprise that when people heard Jesus pray, they had that sense in spades. Right? Luke opens chapter 11 by showing us Jesus in prayer. That's how the the chapter opens. The casual way Luke introduces the scene shows us there actually isn't anything particularly noteworthy about this, this moment in prayer. This isn't like Jesus praying in Gethsemane, right? Praying for the souls of His disciples, pleading with God. It's not, it's not that sort of scene. It's just Jesus going through His normal routine of praying and communing with God. And, and so the disciples, one of the disciples comes to Him and says, as I imagine any of us would have said, if we'd seen and heard Jesus in prayer before the Father, Lord, Lord, would You teach us to pray? Would you teach us to talk to God and, and to commune with God? Would you teach us to know God like that? You can imagine the urgency and the voice of this unnamed disciple, the earnestness. And so Jesus turns to him and says, when you pray, say, He just graciously turns, and the first instruction he gives is incredible, and it's mind-blowing. It was at this point I just realized, well, this is going to be a lot more than just a one-week sermon. When you pray, say, Father. Now, this is one of those places where the Lord's Prayer might be concise, but it is not shallow. It seems so expected to hear God called Father. We're used to that. We hardly blink an eye. Of course He's calling God Father. Of course He's telling them to pray to God as Father. But in Jesus' day, this is is scandalous stuff. This this is world-shattering stuff. If this disciple has heard Jesus praying, he's heard Jesus praying to God as Father, I wonder if part of the reason He asks, is He seeking permission? Jesus would you teach us to pray? And in the back of his mind, he's not even bold enough to say it. Is it possible that, that, that we could call God Father? You see, this is, this is a strange thing. The Old Testament has images of God as Father, but it's a much more disconnected idea. God as Father and Creator. God as the Sovereign Father of the whole universe. Or God as the Father of, of an entire people, Israel. But this, how Jesus refers to God as Father, this has a personal, intimate, one-on-one father and and son, father and daughter texture to it. In the handful of places where the Old Testament directly refers to God as Father, it's not nearly this personal. But for Jesus, it is. In, In fact, if you look at the Gospels, the exclusive way that Jesus addresses God in prayer is by calling Him Father. Go study the New Testament. Go study the Gospels. This is how Jesus prays. He comes to God and He calls Him Father. And to call God Father, Jesus would have used the Aramaic word Abba. It's the way a child would address His Father. It's this, it's this stunning display of intimacy. 
and a Jew would never have imagined calling God this. They have this massive reverence for God. So they won't even pronounce His covenant name when they're reading the Scriptures. Right? They substitute a different name for God. There's so much reverence for that covenant name. So they would never, never be so bold as to assume they could call God Abba. This this word that means sort of dearest Father. And yet, Jesus does it. He only prays to His Father. The Gospels refer to God as Father four times more frequently. The four books of the Gospels refer to God as Father four times more frequently than all 39 books of the Old Testament put together. One commentator said, the notion of God as Father is one of the primary differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has always been Father, but this revelation comes to the forefront and Jesus shows us this. And so Jesus instructs us. More than that, He welcomes us and He invites us to call upon Almighty God with the familiarity of a little boy or a little girl calling out to their dearest father. That's an amazing thing. I'll never forget, there was, a, there was a time in high school where there was a prayer meeting. It was for some group of students. I can't remember if it was Fellowship of Christian Athletes or what the context was. But there were a group of students who came together to pray at the high school with a handful of teachers. And one of them was the the FIAD teacher. And he was so your stereotypical FIAD teacher. Like he had those like weird... 80s, 90s coaches shorts, you know, that were like obscenely short and like way too tight. And they had like the thick waistband, like, you know, the shorts I'm talking about. Like he, that was his uniform. Like he wore those every day. And you just think like, man, why on earth would anyone wear that? You know, he was a college wrestler and he was just your total FIAD teacher. With one exception. His name was also Lyle Lundgren. Doesn't that sound like a FIAD teacher? Lyle Lundgren. Lyle Lundgren loved the Lord. And he knew the Lord. And I never, I'll never forget, it was my freshman year of high school. I was a believer. I had been saved. But it was in that prayer meeting at the start of the school year, as I listened to Lyle Lundgren pray, that my faith was changed. He just started out his prayer very simply, but just said, Father God. And the way he said it, just spoke to this level of intimacy that he knew God and that God was near to him, that God related to him. I had never heard someone pray like that before. And just as, as, as Mr. Lundgren, as you'd obviously call him, continued praying to Father God, Father God, it was this turning point in my faith. I, I had been a believer before that, but there was a sense in which God had still felt distant, more transcendent than imminent, more far away than near. But listening to Him pray to this Father God, for the first time I came to grips with the reality that God, through Jesus, was my Father. It was an incredible moment. I will never forget it. Now there's a professor, Bruce Ware, He's a professor at Southern Seminary. He also teaches at the Sovereign Grace Pastors College. 
he makes a pretty bold statement. He makes the argument that the only way we should pray, the only person of the Trinity we should pray to is God the Father. Dr. Ware actually goes so far as he acknowledges many believers are in the habit of praying to Jesus, or even praying to the Holy Spirit. Most of us probably more likely pray to Jesus. He makes the argument, if you if you look at the Gospels and how Jesus prayed, obviously Jesus was going to pray to himself, so that makes sense. But he says, even look at Paul's prayers. Paul's prayers are directed towards the Father, through the Son, empowered by the Spirit. But they're directed in addressing the Father. And so he makes the argument, we should be praying to God the Father when we pray. That should be our exclusive practice. I remember when he told me that, it was, whoa. That's a really compelling thought. I think there's a lot of truth to it, although I'm not totally convinced it should be an absolute rule. But there's something there. In the New Testament, prayers are addressed to God the Father in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit who indwells believers. When we find ourselves, I think this is important, when we find ourselves mostly or exclusively praying to Jesus, and I think that's a habit for a lot of Christians, we, we don't pray to God the Father, we find ourselves praying to Jesus. I think when we're doing that, it implicitly reveals something. Not like we've we've signed a confession saying this, but there's just a subtle thing going on in our hearts. I think we're praying to Jesus and not to God the Father. Because implicitly, deep down inside, we have a deficiency. We haven't fully grasped the reality that God is not far off. That He's not just the Creator and the Sovereign and the Judge but that He's Abba. The Spirit testifies to our spirit, what? That He's Abba, Father. See, I think people do this praying to Jesus rather than to the Father because they're like I was before that prayer meeting in high school. They're praying to Jesus because they imagine Jesus is the compassionate member of the Trinity. Jesus is the personal one. He's he's the relational one. As opposed to God the Father, who who seems somehow still distant and, and disconnected. Maybe even for some of you, cold or unconcerned. For some of us, this is owing, I think, directly to experiences that we've had with our earthly fathers. Sadly, some of us have had cold and detached earthly fathers. Fathers who were emotionally unavailable. Little more than providers, but there was certainly no sense of of warmth or affection. Some of that's even generational. I know for my dad, my mom told me once, I don't know that he's ever heard his father, my grandpa, I don't know that he's ever heard his father tell him, I love you. And I don't think that's necessarily my grandpa being very strange. I think it's my grandpa being a man of his time in, in a sad way. Some of us have experienced that. For others, there's just no history of a father present. You look back at your upbringing and, and dad wasn't there. You maybe didn't even know your dad or there had been divorce and abandonment and he just wasn't in the picture anymore. And, and then for others... There are horrible experiences of emotional, physical, and sometimes even sexual abuse at the hands of your fathers. 
And it all points across that spectrum from, from the most traumatic and horrific and severe to even just a father who, who was just punching the clock at work and, and not there when he would come home. It's hard and it hurts. These childhoods ranging from, from disappointing to, to horribly traumatic, they understandably warp a person's notion of fatherhood. And, and so it becomes hard to conceive of God as father. Or at least the appeal of God as Father gets lost because our earthly fathers are imperfect. And the imperfections of our earthly fathers kind of fog this image that we're supposed to have. There's actually an entire cottage industry of counseling that goes on that just talks about father wounds. And so, so the way to help a person is to help them get through their father wounds. And there's all sorts of people that, that walk people through counseling. And, and I've seen folks who, who really didn't have bad experiences with their fathers become convinced in these counseling sessions that somehow they have been irreparably harmed and damaged by their fathers. Essentially because dad only hugged him once a week instead of 30 times a week. The thing with it, this little cottage industry is it doesn't matter who you are. You find someone, and I guarantee you, there is some point in their childhood where their dad failed them, right? So it's basically a guaranteed way to make a living. If you're making your living basically finding some way where a father has failed somebody, I guarantee you, you're going to be able to find something if you push far enough. But there's also something there. Some of those people have real massive hurts they're dealing with. Another element in this growing trend people struggling with this notion of God as Father is a battleground in our culture. The cultural battleground over gender and sexuality has more and more people rejecting the notion of, of God as Father. They argue the whole notion of God as Father is just owing to the patriarchy of the times when the Bible was written. And this is just a male-dominated society. There's just evil patriarch things going on. Women were being subjugated unfairly. And so we need to get away from all these notions altogether of God as Father. This hit home for me one time. I was serving in a, in a context where different churches would come in and I was helping to lead in worship. And I'll never forget the beginning of the week. We had a bunch of groups in and I prayed, led worship. I closed out the evening and, and two of the, the leaders came forward. And these two ladies said, oh, we, we just so appreciate you leading tonight. It was so helpful. You know, so they're kind of, you kind of get that sense like they're buttering you up and there's a shoe that's about to drop on the other end of it, you know. But, and then they said it, you know, but for the rest of the week, we would really appreciate it if you would not refer to God as Father. It was just horribly distracting for us as you prayed this is not that far removed from Lyle Lundgren. And it's just, Father God, Father God, Father God. And just that we are actually teaching our students not to pray to God as Father. And, uh, what? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Like, what do you do with the Bible? Well, we have a, a new translation. And so they even took me right to the Lord's Prayer. Sure enough, our Heavenly Mother Father. Right there in the new translation. This, they concluded, was a much better solution 
for people who were disappointed with their fathers or who'd had disastrous relationships with their earthly fathers. And the problem with that is that God has specifically revealed Himself as Father. If you're going to toy around with with those words of Scripture, where else are you going to toy around? This is Jesus' exclusive designation of God. Every time He prays, He calls God Father. This is how God has chosen to reveal Himself. And and so when we reject this, or or we try to improve it, or or we refrain from using Father, or or we substitute and combine Father-Mother, we actually show a, a subtle yet substantive disregard for the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Just in Luke 10, just the previous chapter, right? Jesus has this prayer. We we had a sermon on it a few weeks ago. Rejoicing in the Spirit, He prays, what do you know, to God the Father, thanking God the Father for hiding things from the wise and revealing Himself to little children. You see the dynamic at play. And then Jesus says this, Yes, Father, He prays, For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is revealing God to us as Father. And He's rejoicing in the Spirit that He gets to do this. This is God's gracious will to us. That everyone from Jesus onwards, who is a part of God's people, will now know God in a new and more revealed way. Not just as Creator. Not just as Lord. Not just as Covenant Maker. Not just as Sovereign King. Not just as Judge over all the earth but as the Father. Not just of all His people, but of individual believers. The entire storyline of Scripture is of God rescuing and redeeming and renewing a fallen creation and a fallen humanity. Rescuing and redeeming and renewing a world that's been destroyed by sin. And so the image of fatherhood is precisely one of those places where Jesus has come to earth to redeem and to restore. Yes, there are father wounds. And some of them are horrific. That's another word for it. That word doesn't do justice. But Jesus has come to bind up and heal those wounds. So that far from from jettisoning the notion of fatherhood, because none of us have had perfect fathers. And none of us will be perfect fathers. None of us will marry perfect husbands and fathers. We can come in the name of Jesus to a perfect heavenly father whose love will never fail us. So Jesus starts by showing us to pray in the Father's name. And then he tells us not just to pray in the Father's name, but to pray for his name. That sounds like a strange phrase, doesn't it? To pray for his... I'm I'm praying for Hannah's name this week. 
Huh? Aren't you praying for your wife? No, I'm praying for her name. What do you mean you're praying for her name? Well, Jesus makes those things connected. He tells us, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Jesus connects two concepts here that we don't usually hold together. God as Father and God as Holy. And Jesus brings them together. The whole point of the prayer is that He's telling us these aren't separable characteristics in God. They blend together perfectly and harmoniously. In fact, He wants us, in this new name for God, He wants that new name, Father, to be hallowed. Well, that's a weird word. Like in a Halloween costume? What are you saying? No, to be hallowed, to be set apart, to to be treated with supreme honor and dignity. He wants the name of God as Father, Father God, He wants that name to be esteemed. Now, we treat names differently than people in Jesus' day. More and more, like when people pick names for kids, it's not oftentimes necessarily because of the meaning behind your name. That used to be how you'd pick names. They were either family names, right? Or they were biblical names. Or you really liked and really felt a connection to the meaning of that name. My mother struggled with infertility. So my name is Matthew, gift of God. Makes sense, right? You have a connection with that. Now, today, that that doesn't happen as often. Sometimes, but not as much. So yesterday on Case's basketball team, we hear the parents cheering for their little son. Go Talon! (laughs) Go Talon! Oh, we've always prayed that he would just feast upon the weak in his class. Sink his talons into them. I'm guessing they named him Talon because they liked the sound of it. Not so much for the meaning. You get the notion. We treat names differently. But for Jewish people, they put massive stock in the meaning of a name. It was meant to symbolize the character of a person. That was especially true when it came to God's names. You've probably seen or maybe you've taken part in those studies that are done looking at the names of God. Studying the different names that God has in Scripture and looking at how these different names reveal to us different aspects of God's character. So it's hugely significant when Jesus says we should pray that God's name of Father be hallowed. That we should pray that God, Father God, would be revered as the Father God. And Jesus isn't saying, pray, Father, your name is hallowed. No, He's saying, pray, Father, may your name be hallowed. The point is we should be praying for God as Father to be revered and to be esteemed. And that's a strange thing. Because what struck me in that high school prayer meeting was this sense of intimacy with this Father God. And sadly, sometimes in the churches and the places that have the strongest desire to know God in terms of intimacy they also leave behind a sense of reverence for God. Jesus shows us here that's not meant to happen. Those who know God most intimately should also have a great passion, a great reverence for who He is. You just look through Scripture. If I was to ask you, 
in Scripture, who were the people who had the most intimate relationships with God? Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, the Apostle John, who Jesus loved, right? Go look at those characters and see the level of intimacy they had with God and just the countless times and places where their reverence for who God is, even as their intimacy goes deeper and grows stronger, their reverence increases. The point is, we should be praying for God the Father to be revered. The prayer is that God would act to bring reverence and honor and glory to the image of Him as our Father. And so you see, there's nothing arbitrary about calling God Father. There's something at stake. Jesus wants God to be glorified as our Father. Now, when I was a young boy, my parents worked at this little college in Iowa, and they had this, this big building they built called the Boltman Center, where they poured millions and millions of dollars of cash into keeping up with the Joneses and having the nicest facilities possible for their athletic teams. And I would go to watch basketball games and football games at this college. And there was this one hallway that I loved to go down. It was quite literally a Hall of Fame. It was their Athletic Hall of Fame. And the reason I loved to go down that hallway was because about two-thirds of the way down that hallway, on the wall, was a picture of my father. My dad was in the Athletic Hall of Fame for Northwestern. And underneath the picture, there was a little plaque, a little inscription, describing his athletic achievements. I loved to walk down that hallway. I love to take my friends down that hallway. Let's go to the bathroom this way. This is not the long way. What are you talking about? Oh, look at this. My dad had been a little college All-American. Back in that day, you had Division I and then 500 other schools. And the little All-Americans was one All-American team made up from the players from those 500 other schools. And he was on the team. And that was such a big deal to me. When we would go play football behind the bleachers when the college was playing their games, I walked tall, man. My dad's in the Hall of Fame. My dad played for this. My dad was better than your dad. I'm going to be all-time quarterback. Do you know who my dad is? That, that was the way I processed it. But there was this sense of my dad and his glory at being a little college All-American. But it was a big deal to me as a kid. Never mind that there were a billion people in China who probably didn't even know what football was. That seemed huge to me. The motivation for that doesn't have to be explained, does it? Children implicitly want their fathers to receive glory. We want our fathers to be a big deal. We want to revel in the greatness of our dads. Because we understand as sons and daughters, we share the family name. If, if dad's a big deal, if dad is the strongest, if dad is the smartest, if dad is the boss, that means we're a big deal. And yet for many of us, the Lord's Prayer can seem formulaic, can't it? It can seem just disconnected. We mutter the words 
but our minds and our hearts, they aren't truly in them. We know it so well, we don't have to really think about what we're saying. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Luther called the Lord's Prayer the greatest martyr on earth. Luther called the Lord's Prayer the greatest martyr on earth. What he meant by that was that the Lord's Prayer is so often recited in a manner just devoid of emotion or thought or care with almost no reverence or any sort of faith by the person saying it that it had become a martyr. It has been robbed of all of its meaning. It was dying a thousand deaths on the lips of just Christians not thinking about what they were saying. Consider the tragedy of that. This is a prayer that's meant to be prayed to God the Father for His name to be revered, and it's become so commonplace, it's being muttered without any sense of reverence or awe at all. It's as though we've forgotten that this prayer, this prayer, is how Jesus teaches us to pray. It's His prayer for us. Consider what Jesus is doing here. What sort of gift is He trying to give us? He's trying to fill our hearts with something vastly larger than the normal scraps that we go through life clamoring for. That's what's happening in this prayer. It's not the disciple saying, Jesus, teach us to pray. Oh gosh. Just, just say this. Father, Lord in heaven, help your name, kingdom come. There, you got it? Okay. I got. No, this is Jesus. Teach us to pray. Okay. Father, hallowed be your name. He's not giving us a ritualistic recitation. He's teaching us to find supreme satisfaction in the holiness and the majesty of our Heavenly Father. He's not giving us a few memorized lines to kind of prop up so we have this superstitious sense of security. Oh, I feel better because I prayed the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching us a way and a pattern of, of communing with the Father a way that He's known and that He's practiced in perfect Trinitarian harmony for all eternity. I, I am more and more convinced. There's some people, when you, when you talk about God's glory, it's like you can just kind of see just like the eyes get glazed over. Their kind of eyes start rolling in the back of their heads like they're falling asleep while they're talking to you. There's just this disconnected sense of God's glory? Okay. Like, it's not very practical or tangible, but okay. But I am more and more convinced that when, when we see people who feel disconnected, who just don't have any excitement for God's glory, I think we see here in all sorts of places in Scripture that when there's a disconnect between God's glory and you having any sort of passion for it, it's showing there's a disconnect in your understanding of God as your Father. You don't want to take your friends into that hallway and show them? Look. Look at who this is. He, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He sits enthroned above and He does whatever He pleases. The mountains melt like wax before the glory of my Father 
in heaven. And you see the connection? And you see the disconnect it reveals if our hearts aren't moved in that way? If you don't care about God's majesty, do you really know Him as your Father? When we treat this prayer like a a mantra, just to mutter, or a talisman, just to kind of prop up so we can have some shallow psychological peace after we pray it, we're settling for this, this superficial faith in some vague, disconnected deity. But not the God of the Bible. Jesus is giving us something so much greater, so much richer, so much more powerful. Come, Jesus says, come and call upon your heavenly Father. He isn't distant. God isn't distracted. The door to your Father's office is not perpetually closed. Come and call upon Him. His ear is inclined to you. His heart is open to you. He wants to give you satisfaction. He wants to give you joy. He wants to give you peace. He wants to steal your fear, to steal your fears. He, he wants to accentuate your pleasures. But do you see, child? Jesus tells us. Do you see that the pathway to infinite happiness is to look away from yourselves and to be consumed with passion, to burn with zeal for God your Father's glory? And do you see that I, Jesus, am the doorway to this sweet communion, to God's fatherly affection for you in this way? That's the reality we so often forget. It's Jesus who teaches us to pray this way, and it's Jesus who makes these prayers possible in the first place. We've become so accustomed to the notion that that God is our Father that we've forgotten how unnatural that is in the first place. Of course, He's my Father. I've been praying that since I was four. When people aren't railing against the image of God as Father... They're often arguing that he's everyone's father. And, and in, in a general, common grace sort of sense, yes, he's everyone's father as he is the creator of all the world and all the universe. But arguing that we are all, by nature, children of God, that, that's not the vision of Scripture. We just heard this morning in worship, right? In our liturgy. Seth read from Ephesians chapter 2. And the second half of that passage is just the gospel leaping off the page at us. But it starts out with a reminder. Ephesians chapter 2. By nature, we were children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 says, By nature, we are sons of disobedience. By nature, we are dead in our sin and in our trespasses. It's not a natural, normal, expected thing that you get to call God Father. Now earlier I said whenever Jesus prays to God in the Gospels, He calls Him Father. And He does. With one monumental exception. 
the only place where Jesus doesn't pray to God as Father is when he's hanging on the cross. And he's dying in agony. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in that moment, for the first and only time in all eternity, the Son isn't recognized by God the Father. The Father turns His face away. Jesus prays and He calls out to a God who is wrathful and who is angry, who is pouring out justice for all the sins against His glory. Jesus does this as our substitute in our place, bearing our punishment and our condemnation. He does it as our sacrificial lamb. And He does it so that if we believe in Him, if we cling to Him, if we put ourselves under the doorpost covered in His blood, as they did in the Passover, if we do that, then we won't be children of wrath and sons of disobedience any longer. He dies on that tree. The Gospel tells us. Ephesians tells us. All of the New Testament tells us. Exodus is pointing forward to us. He dies on that tree so that we can be sons and we can be daughters of God the Father. So we can read the rest of Ephesians. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus doesn't twist God's arm. God the Father does this. It was His plan to rescue us and bring us home. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has predestined us for adoption as sons. Adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Conclude by, by praying a prayer written by Matthew Henry. He takes the Lord's Prayer and then he just expands on every phrase with massive amounts of Scripture. Just bow your heads with me. O Lord our God, doubtless You are our Father. You are the Father of lights, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. The everlasting Father from whom and through whom and to whom are all things you are the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose glory was that of the only Son from the Father who is at your side. You are in Christ our Father and the Father of all believers, 
whom you have predestined for adoption as sons, and into whose hearts you have sent the Spirit of the Son, teaching us to cry, Abba, Father. O Lord, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. That the Lord God Almighty should be a Father to us, and we should be sons and daughters to Him. And that to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, you should give the right to become children of God. Oh, that we may receive adoption as sons, and that as obedient and genuine children, we may be conformed to the example of Him who has called us, who is holy. And may we be imitators of God as beloved children, and conformed to the image of His Son, in whose precious name we pray.